0: Friends, would you open in your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel 28? 1 Samuel chapter 28. Since the very beginning when we decided to preach through 1 Samuel, I have been dreading chapter 28. I've dreaded this chapter because, as you may know, it's the story of Saul employing a witch to help him speak to somebody who is already dead. And that doesn't lend itself to a crystal clear sermon. So I've been dreading this thing. And this week I was in my office. It was a Tuesday I was reading my Bible and studying everything that it has to say about sorcery and witchcraft and necromancy, and as I do that, a storm appears and my lights begin to flicker in my office, and it was eerie. So I can't wait to see what's in store today as I read this passage again. 1 Samuel 28, and I'm going to read most of it for us, beginning in verse 3. Hear now God's word. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put out the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem, and Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, seek out for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night and he said, divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. Then the king said to her, Do not be afraid, what do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a god coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, "'I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me, and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I should do.' And Samuel said, "'Why then do you ask of me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David.' Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also give Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines." Then Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel, and there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. Verse 25, and she put food before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. Let's pray together. Father, this is a dark chapter indeed, and I pray that even in the midst of this darkness, even watching Saul with just absolute grief in our hearts, that you would speak to us by the power of your spirit, by the power of the resurrection that is in store for the life of the believer, by the power of your word, would you speak to us and change us and shape us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. I was uh, recently... Surfing on a church website, and I saw that uh, kind of prominently on this website, the church was talking about their Halloween practice. This church did not at all agree with Halloween, they didn't want to celebrate it. In fact, they said that for a Christian to celebrate uh, Halloween would be tantamount to somebody celebrating Hitler's birthday. So it was a very strong Halloween stance, um, but they weren't sure what to do on October 31st. They didn't want to do the Halloween thing. They weren't reformed, so they didn't want a Reformation celebration. Uh, They didn't like the idea of the the harvest festival that's popular among churches. And so as they were thinking about what to do, they finally landed on their, their October 31st practice, and that was to act out the story of 1 Samuel 28. (laughs) every October 31st someone would dress up as the witch of Endor and they would act out this story that we just read and all of a sudden dressing your kid up as a puppy and letting him get candy at the neighbor's house sounds pretty tame compared to this practice but we've got to ask the question when we approach a text like this what on earth is going on here first and then secondly what do we learn from this how do we glean how are we shaped by this text so let's Let's just jump right in and address in the beginning, what exactly is happening here? What's going on? Our Bibles are very aware of dark practices, of witchcraft, of sorcery, of spells, of spiritists, of mediums and necromancers. When we refer refer to those last two mediums and necromancers, we're talking about those who seek to communicate with the dead. And as the people approached Israel, as they were getting ready to inherit the promised land, God again and again, he forbade the people of Israel from practicing any of these things. It comes up over and over again in places like Exodus 22 and Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 18, These practices were very popular among Israel's neighbors. They were very popular among the Canaanites, the land that they were going to take. And so God said again and again, have nothing to do with these things. Do not participate in them. Do not practice these things. Well, they were wildly popular in Israel's day. And of course, they're wildly popular in our day. We have many avenues in our day to practice these things. As I was thinking about this sermon, uh, just up the road from my house, there is a dual business There's a person who is a palm reader and also a used car salesman. So they've got the dual business going and I drive by the place often and I have never written her number down because I kind of figure if she can tell my future, then she'll call me when I need a car. But this is very popular. We understand, we have friends, we know of people who dabble in these things. It's popular in our day. It was very popular in Israel's day. And Israel could not resist. We know that because our text is happening hundreds of years after what John just read from Deuteronomy today. And in all that time, all those hundreds of years, we find out in verse 3 of our text that Saul needs to kick out the mediums and the necromancers from the land, meaning that they're all here. They're all practicing within Israel. And he has this just act of obedience in which he kicks them all out of the land because they've been there for so long, it's been ingrained in their practices. Well, not only do we read that he kicks them out, but then in verse seven we read that Saul changes his mind. He realizes he actually wants to speak to a medium. And when he inquires of his servants, where would I find somebody like this now that I've kicked them all out of the land, they're able to answer him immediately. Oh, you're looking for a medium? Well, the best one you're gonna find, she's up the road, she's in Endor on Madison and Fifth, mention my name, she'll give you a good deal. We know exactly where to find a medium. This is very popular in their day. Well, Saul, he disguises himself, he grabs two people with him, and at nighttime he goes and he finds her, and he convinces her to to do this practice for him. She says, I don't know about this, this might be a trap, Saul doesn't want me to do something like this, and Saul swears to God that she will not be hurt for flagrantly disobeying God. Well, she gets to work, and abracadabra, something crazy happens. Saul appears from the dead, and he begins to speak to Saul and the men who are with him. Now, the question on all of our minds is, what exactly is happening here? What what happens when we see Samuel? Is this a trick that's being played on them? Is this an illusion? Is this their imagination? Or is this a demon that appears? Or is this really Samuel? And we've got to say that the text itself is not emphatically clear. We can't say one way or another for sure what is happening in our passage, and nor does that ultimately matter, right? Just because we can't exactly interpret what's going on, we still understand that what's happening here is completely forbidden for a believer. This is wicked, and God says we shouldn't practice these things, not because they're not true, but because they're evil, and we want no part of them. All that being said, I think there's enough evidence in the text to kind of lean us in the direction of thinking this may actually be God intervening and surprising everybody here and truly bringing Samuel back from the dead to speak to Saul one last time. There's five reasons why I think that, and I'll just share those with you very briefly. Number one, we do have a precedent for people coming back from the dead and speaking to people who are alive. We see that in Jesus' transfiguration, right? When Jesus goes up on the mountain, he brings Peter, James, and John. And when he transfigures, Moses and Elijah, they appear and they speak together. So we do know of another instance where that actually happens. Number two, the medium herself is shocked. She cries out according to verse 12. I don't know if in her mind she was there to trick a paying customer or if she was planning on summoning a demon, but whatever her plan was, she's very surprised by what actually takes place here. We read in verse 12. Number three, Saul is able to identify Samuel. So if this was a trick, it would have to be a very robust one because Saul knows Samuel very well. He's seen him often and he identifies this person as Samuel. And not only does Saul identify him as Samuel, but number four, uh, the text identifies him as Samuel. So like in verse 15, the text says, and Samuel said, instead of our Bible saying something like, somebody who appeared to be Samuel said, it seems to take for granted that this is actually Samuel who is speaking. And number five, the final reason we think this is, Everything that Samuel says in verses 16 through 19 is truth. He's speaking what is absolutely true and what is in character with what he has always shared. What he shares with Saul now, he has always shared with him in his life when he prophesied this judgment over Saul. All of it is true. Not only does he reiterate what he's already said, so that's not new revelation, but then he accurately prophesies, Saul, you and your sons will die tomorrow. All of that is absolutely true. Related to that fifth point, I was actually reading an article in Newsweek magazine on how to become a fake medium. How do you trick people into communicating with the dead? How do you sit across from a person and do a hot reading or a cold reading and let them think that you're talking to somebody who is dead? And one of the key ingredients to be a medium is flattery. You want to tell the person across the table what they want to hear but apparently Samuel missed that article in Newsweek because he does anything but that. I mean, everything he shares is absolutely blisteringly true. And for these reasons, they're not a slam dunk, but they seem to have us lean towards the fact this might actually be God intervening and bringing Samuel back from the dead. Again, There's no interpretation that's going to change our approach as Christians to divination or to fortune-telling or to seeking to communicate with the dead. All of these things are wicked. You could dabble in these practices. You could pull up a Wikipedia article and type in necromancy, and if you did, you would find 10 steps to communicate with the dead. You can find that. I'm going to warn you that step one is to tap into your sixth sense which has to be the most difficult step one of any wikiHow project you're ever going to do. And then step three is you can only ask yes or no questions, which is a major disappointment if you've gone to all that trouble. But any way you interpret our text for what's going on here, it's going to lead you to three places. You, You experiment with something like that, and you might, number one, just play a trick on yourself or your own mind. Number two, you may actually summon a demon. Or number three... God himself may appear and pronounce judgment over you. There's not a good way that this is going to end, and the Bible pleads with us, do not practice these things and do not have anything to do with these things. Now, if you're sitting here this morning and You have dabbled in the occult and dark magic. This has been part of your past or it's something that you're experiencing right now. Or you just have questions about this or demonic activity or spiritual warfare. That is absolutely something you should come and talk about. I, myself, John, one of the leaders of this this church, we would love to talk with you more about what that means and what that looks like and what God is calling you to in the midst of that. One of my fond memories from serving in India, Julie and I were there for two years, where where this is far more relevant, these spiritual activities, was to have a brand new baby Christian come and talk to Julie and I. She was hardly literate in her Bible, but she had a very big concern. She said, somebody has cast a spell on me, and I don't know what to do with that. I don't know what kind of effect that can have on me, and I don't know what to do with that. And we were able to sit down with her and to open passages like First John 4, 4 and tell her, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. I'm not telling you that this is not true or it has no power. What I'm telling you is there is one who dwells inside of you who has all power and he has overcome. That's the encouragement we have as believers when we engage in this world and when we think about this world and the effect that this world can have on us. That's kind of giving us a sense of the lay of the land, what's happening in this passage. We want to turn now and ask, what can we learn from this? What do we draw from this? How is a text like this going to shape us and change us? There's actually an important structure to this story that communicates a very dark theme. Chapter 28, if you are paying attention to the geography of the story, is actually an interruption. We read in chapter 27, it's not a simple chronological telling of the story. A simple chronological telling of the story would be chapters 27, then 29, and then 28. Because in chapter 27, we read that the Philistines are first gathering for war. They're in the south. They're ready to go north. Then when we visit them again next week, they're still in the south getting ready to travel north. But in chapter 28, what we just read, they are marching north, and they've come to a place called Shunem. So we know that the writer of the story, he's actually grabbed 28 from the future, chapter 28, and moved aside 27 and 29, and he stuck this in the middle. And when you see something like that, you pay attention to that, and you say, why would he do something like that? Why wouldn't he just tell the chronological story? And I think part of the answer is that this is, has a rhetorical effect. One of the themes that this interruption calls attention to is a disturbing one. As dark as David's plight is, Saul's is far, far darker. As ugly, as harrowing, as despairing as things get for David, Saul's plight is so much darker. David's plight is dark. We haven't sugarcoated that at all. We left him despairing in the last chapter, befriending an enemy, and he is on the verge of becoming a traitor. But David is a believer. And even at his lowest points, even at the darkest moments of his life, he is still learning the language of repentance and faith. That's all over the Psalms that David is writing in this season. God has his hands on David. It doesn't feel like this, but it's true. And you can see this in the contrast between Saul's dark night and David and Samuel's lamp in the night. Let's just very briefly contrast these two as we see them and start with Saul's dark night. Look at where Saul is. We're following Saul in this chapter down a very deep, dark hole of his own making, and we've almost arrived at the bottom of it. Back in chapter 15, God pronounced judgment over Saul through Samuel, and he said, you'll remember, to obey is better than sacrifice, for rebellion is as the sin of divination. Here we are so many chapters later in which Saul has practiced now both rebellion and divination. And notice that in the entire chapter, Saul is so far from God, he only wants God's help and not God himself. All he needs is help from God. He doesn't want the person of God himself. The one thing Saul most desperately needs is to get on his face and to confess his sins and to trust in God alone for his salvation. And that is the one thing throughout this entire chapter and throughout his life he will not do. He wants a gift from God. He doesn't want God himself. We say to each other that there are no atheists in foxholes, but the reality is there's a whole bunch of deists in foxholes. There are people who want a gift from God when they're in a very difficult place, but they don't want the giver himself. That's Saul in our passage. At this point, he'd rather get a favor from God than gain the favor of God. He wants advice and not atonement, and Saul is completely lost. There's a relevant passage to this in Luke 16. It's a parable that Jesus tells, and it's a very vivid parable about the rich man and Lazarus. And what's so curious about this parable, it's the the only parable that Jesus ever names somebody who is in the parable, which leaves the reader to wonder if it has a ring of truth to it at all. But the story in Luke 16 is that both of these men die and the rich man, he goes to judgment to Hades and the poor man, Lazarus, he goes to paradise with Abraham and the rich man, when he realizes where he is and he realizes the torment that he's experiencing, he cries out across the chasm to Abraham and he begs with him, Abraham, I have five brothers. Would you please send Lazarus to warn them so that they do not come to this awful place? Would you do that for me? I know that I will be here forever, but I plead with you. Will you send someone to warn them about this awful place? Abraham responds, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the rich man says, No, Father Abraham, but if someone will go from the dead, they will repent. I know it if someone can just appear from the dead. And Abraham responds, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Abraham is not being indifferent. He is absolutely right. Here you have the man Saul who has the book of Moses. He has living prophets in his midst and now he has seen someone rise from the dead and he is not changed at all. He's not convinced and he will not repent. And today I tell you, there will be people who hear the word of God, who are confronted with the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and they will not be changed and they will not repent. And that brings us to some of the most chilling verses in all the Bible. Verse 15, Saul says, God has turned away from me and he answers me no more. And Samuel affirms that in 16 when he says, the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy. God pronounces his judgment over the man Saul. You know, someone pointed out to me a very eerie connection between Saul here in our passage and a scene in the New Testament. Verse 25, we ended, we read that Saul, he eats food after this experience and he goes out and the text reminds us that it's nighttime. He walks out with his servants into the night. In the New Testament, in the upper room, hours before Jesus' arrest, he tells his disciples who are sitting with him, there is someone here who's going to betray me, and we find out that it is Judas. And John tells the story in chapter 13. After receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Two men, Saul and Judas, two men who come as close to believing as an unbeliever can get, who will forever show us that it is possible to talk like a Christian, to walk like a Christian, to do good things like a Christian, and yet to walk away into the dark night forever. They don't lose their salvation, they reject their only hope of salvation. And the night is dark indeed. This is a pronouncement of judgment over these men. Not so in the life of a believer. There is always a lamp in the life of a believer in these dark nights. We see it in David, and we see it in this passage in Samuel. We said before that our Bibles are like pianos. When you strike a note on a piano, Other notes in perfect intervals, they also vibrate in harmony. You can see that on a stringed instrument, and that's what happens in our Bibles. We're standing four weeks from Easter. We're standing four weeks from talking about Jesus rising from the dead and defeating death once and for all. And the closer we get to that day, the closer we get to striking that note of the resurrection, the more those notes of harmony begin to play in our Bibles to the point where we lift a text like this in light of Easter and it vibrates, it sings in our hands with the resurrection. We started this series in the very beginning, being introduced to Samuel's mother, Hannah, who was barren, and God gifted her with a child. She gave birth to Samuel, and when that reality strikes her, she sings this incredible song in chapter two. She sings to a God, specifically a God of reversals, a God who can reverse fortunes. He's a God who can lift up the humble and bring down the proud, He's a God who can make the rich poor and the poor rich. He's a God who can make the hungry full and the full hungry. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6, 1,000 years before Jesus rises from the dead, she says, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. Sheol is another word for death in our Old Testament. How little did Hannah know that her words would be echoed in the life of her son and of her king. As wild as this story is, it plays a note of harmony with the resurrection. We watch in this story as Samuel is brought up from death and Saul is about to go down and meet his death. We're encountered with a God who stands over death itself. And when we see that, we are reminded that the darkest night of despair for a Christian will always, always, always be lit with the lamp of the resurrection. Doesn't matter how dark or despairing David's life gets before or after this interruption, it will never be as dark as Saul's. We always, as a believer, have the enduring hope of the resurrection. In the resurrection, Saul's cry in verse 15, God has turned away from me, has become on David's lips, the upright shall see your face, Psalm 11. In the resurrection, Samuel's sentence in verse 16, the Lord is your enemy, has become on Jesus' lips, I have called you friends, John 15. And in the resurrection, this light and momentary affliction, Paul says, that in this moment feels anything but light and momentary, is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. Let's pray together. Lord, would you prepare us for an eternal weight of glory? No matter how dark this night is, no matter how close we dabble to despair and to sin and to doubt, our lives will always be lit by the lamp of the resurrection. Because you will rise again from the dead, you will draw a people to yourself and we will be secure forever. Would you remind us of this hope, the reality of your resurrection, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.